Hello and welcome to Unstoppable. I'm your host, Kerwin Ray, and today we are going down the rabbit hole with Dr. Amit Goswami. He is a now-retired professor of physics from the University of Oregon who has a special interest in the field of theoretical and quantum physics, which he believes is the key to understanding death, God, psychology, and the meaning of life. But what he is best known for is actually his work into the science behind consciousness. He has also been featured in What the Bleep Do We Know? And in this episode, we talk about why he believes that consciousness itself is fundamental to the existence of the universe. Get ready to go down the rabbit hole and get quantum. This baby is nothing more than a sea of potential. Enjoy the ride. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I am super pumped, super excited to welcome Dr. Amit Goswami. Amit, welcome to the show. Glad to be here, Karen. Thank you for being here. Now, I kind of feel like I've got an unfair advantage uh, based on the people who are listening and watching this right now because you know I just had the privilege of watching you speak for two hours. Um, and I have to say, I up until now, I've been the only speaker I've ever seen personally that has been able to utilize four flip charts really well. Um, and you crushed me. Like the, way, the way you used four flip charts to document uh, your processes and your methodologies you went, was, was outstanding. But for those people that perhaps don't know who you are, uh, look, I, I came to know you through you know, the, the, the worldwide phenomena, which was the movie What the Bleep Do We Know? I know you've written uh, a number of How many books have you written now? Is it like eight? Ten. Ten books? Plus or minus tech. Uh, plus or minus. <laughs> uh, the one most notably that you know really sits in my heart, which is actually one of the only books I've read of yours, which is uh, the self-aware universe. You know, was was to me it was it was a beautiful piece of work that really introduced us to understanding the awareness that is present in everything, the consciousness that lives all around us. But uh, perhaps for those of us who don't know who you are, like uh, what is the the Amit Goswami story? Well, there's not much to tell. I mean, the, the thing is that, you know, I... Um, well, you're, a, you're a well-renowned theoretical physicist at, the, at a very I, high level. I was certainly a theoretical physicist of nothing very special. And then I had an experience where the message seems to be pretty clear that I better change because my ways were not particularly making me happy. So I really wanted to find happy physics, and um, I started looking at quantum physics for that reason only, that maybe it will give me some answers about consciousness. I just had a hunch. And it did, but it totally surprised me, the, the answer, because I absolutely was sold to the idea that matter is the ground of being. What that means is that everything we can predict by studying matter, which is what a physicist trains to be, you know, movement of matter, equations, solve it, get the solution, apply it, make your career. It tells uh, that human beings are very simple machines. Uh, no, maybe not so simple, but still machines yeah. and quite predictable. And spirituality possibly um, could not exist uh, except as conveniences for human beings to play with. Right. Conveniences because we, we have self-image and our image sometimes doesn't fit the fact that we are machines. That was my belief system. And all of a sudden it got changed upside down because the finding of quantum physics, you cannot solve quantum paradoxes in any other way. Wow. I tried for years and years. Only solution is that consciousness is the ground of being and we all originate from that unity consciousness, domain of potentiality. 
So you actually sought out quantum physics as a way to discover happiness. That's right. Do you know what's so ironic about that? When I actually, because my journey with quantum, with physics and quantum mechanics is interesting, uh, I sought it out because I wanted, I wanted to understand reality so I could make more money. And what I discovered was, you know, very different. Like not only did I, you know, was I able to achieve that outcome, which I feel very blessed for, but it was almost like that was the illusion. And as Buddha says, you know, teach them the illusion until they're ready for the truth. And through the pursuit of money, through understanding reality and, and how to, you know, increase the probability of certain events showing up, I actually discovered the same thing. I actually discovered, you know, the, the, the balance that is constantly present, you know, the divine order that is constantly present. And that gives us in turn the ability to be able to regulate our experience, I believe, in a healthy way and achieve a level of peace and happiness uh, that, that you speak of. That's, and it doesn't uh, surprise me that this uh, search of money uh, led you to this place. Yeah. It, it, it's absolutely money is not to be excluded. Mm. And this is many people don't understand it. They think money itself divides. Money is neutral. Mm. How we use it is the point. Yes. And you recognize that, yeah, money is part of abundance. You included it and that's it. That's why we are talking right now. Exactly. And it's a, a beautiful outcome. So quantum, quantum physics, quantum mechanics, you know, it's been one of those, um, you know, dark arts for, for, for so long. It's now becoming mainstream. Quant you know, what the bleep do we know is, you know, is profound and you know, I think profoundly important to help bring quantum physics into the mainstream. But how does quantum physics contradict, you know, the, the, you know, Newtonian physics cherished view of the world? And why has there been, even Einstein hated quantum physics because he couldn't explain it, but why has there been so much defense in the scientific community to, you know, in, in many cases, try and derail, uh, defame, and, you know, even really attack, you know, the science that has come through that has become so transformational? What's, what's the problem? Bit, it's a bit scary to some people. Right. You know, in, if you were born in the West and West has uh, dominated the world for so long, I mean, not very long con compared to human history of some hundreds of thousands of years, it's only the last 400 years or so, but still it becomes a habit. And, and then um, a physics which has really clearly Eastern flavor comes at you and it's hard to believe. If Einstein had that weak point, I mean, he was a believer of an idea called deism. Yes, God exists, but God retires after creating the world and does not interfere. That the fact that God actually is us, it's just so foreign to the Western mind, no thanks to Christianity, popular Christianity, yeah. Jesus knew. Jesus repeatedly said, my father and I are one, you are all God's children, but you know, we don't we don't read New Testament. What we uh, mean by Christianity is Old Testament, and that of course is very separate oriented. You know, thou shall obey hierarchies and all this we create. So that's the Western mind, and that's the unfortunate thing about the Western mind. I love the creativity of the Western mind, but it's it's the uh, it's that. Complete adherence to the idea that, uh, you know, it's separate. Right. Newton said independent separate objects. We also made God separate in this, you know, monism to monotheism. That was the fundamental Mon I like that. Problem. Monism to monotheism. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> and that separateness is hard to, hard to, you know, overcome. Right. It's interesting how science came about as a way to prove philosophy. 
uh, in its early stages, and please correct me if I'm wrong, from my understanding of science, like science came about as a way for the philosophers to prove their theories. Is that correct? Yeah, sort of. And it's kind of interesting, though, how now um, quantum mechanics has almost become the philosophy of science in so many ways, at a theoretical level anyway, because, you know, we have these theoretical discussions, how we believe the universe works and how it, sh how it shows up. And it almost feels like it's, it's the new age of philosophy yeah. um, with, with what's coming through. What is the difference in quantum mechanics between philosophy and theoretical physics? Well, the difference is now gradually uh, decreasing and eventually maybe completely disappear. Because, um, well, some philosophers don't like it. Quantum physics, ideas of quantum physics are philosophical to begin with but they are also experimental in the sense that we can verify them. And many philosophers don't like the idea of this verifying philosophical ideas because they are so used to being wild in terms of metaphysical speculation. All of a sudden, quantum physics closes down all those speculations. Right. We don't need speculation anymore. Oneness, fact. Uh, we have a, a deeper self than the ego, fact. We are verifying all this, <laughs> so need for philosophy disappears, and that means an entire line of idle thinking about the world uh, disappears as a profession. What I love about the work that you do is you actually do a lot of exploration around consciousness and the effect that consciousness has on the material world and, and the relationship between the two. When we talk about consciousness, what does consciousness mean to you in, the, in, the, in, in, your, in your world? Well, see, in, in quantum physics, it comes out like this. Um, uh, there is a measurement problem. We have possibilities. When we measure them, possibilities become actual events, which we call particle, localized. Before then, waves can be everywhere. Yeah. So, uh, some agency chooses. And it cannot be material agency, because there is a mathematical theorem that if you stay within quantum physics, you can never convert possibility into actuality. So, what does it? It has to be something outside. And the clue is that that something is one. There is oneness. Whatever it is, it's one. Now, that plus the idea that an observer has to be involved in order for that oneness to be able to change possibility into actuality already gives you the intuition it got to be our consciousness. What else is there, right? So um, uh, that's the way that quantum physics introduces consciousness. It's the agent of choice. But then you look at some of the other ideas, and then you find that, well, if this consciousness has to produce the human being, which are not only uh, causal, but also purposive, so then you realize consciousness must also have a purpose. And um, so that introduces the idea of, okay, so we can talk about the where consciousness is going. So what is the purpose of consciousness? That's exactly right. So the purpose <laughs> of consciousness is to manifest a better world. Right. And better is defined by the, uh, what Plato called archetypes. More love, more beauty, more justice, more goodness, more abundance. Right. So do you believe that the consciousness is responsible for decoherence and, and the transition from the quantum world, you know, the non-local quantum world, which is, you know, the C and the super potentiality and the C and super potential. And, and at some point that energy collapses and creates form. And, you know, there's a, there, there's a transaction in the middle or there's a, there's a transition in the middle between this soupy, you know, ethereal 
non-local wave-like substance and this localized particle, you know, material form in nature, is consciousness the key? Is that, is that the conduit between those worlds? Um, um, the consciousness is there's a few other conduits. So there is consciousness and then there is matter. Matter cannot do anything in the macro level but to make representations. So what consciousness does, just like an uh, architect uses a blueprint before it makes form, so consciousness similarly uses some blueprints. These are the blueprints that we call meaning, that we call archetype, that we call right. vital energies that we feel. Those are the intermediates that consciousness uses. So we have not only the gross experience of matter, but also subtle experiences of these intermediates. Okay, so, yeah. so consciousness is a little more complex than... Of course it is. I'm dumbing it down for... For, for the, the 101 physicist, armchair too. physicist sitting at home. <laughs> um, but I guess what I'm searching for is, you know, because oftentimes people, you know, they navigate this world thinking that they're a victim of circumstance. You know, people navigate this world thinking they're a victim of, you know, other people's behaviours. And, and, you know, maybe a slightly enlightened perspective might say, well, I'm a victim of other people's creations. So I'm curious to know, you know, as, as ourselves, as observers, as, 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 we are, as we are called, what role do we play in the creation of the things that we see on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, it depends, Carmen. It, it always, uh, a person is always entitled to choose whatever uh, he or she decides to live. You know, this is the fundamental freedom we have. We have recognized this in the spiritual traditions. All religions ultimately give a lot of value to what you choose. You can choose God, you may not have to choose God. <clears throat> so we, we don't have to um, even in quantum physics, we, we say potentiality. But what does that mean? That means we don't have to choose the potentiality. We can live within the limits that we have. If we are happy being a materialist, so be it. If we are happy being unhappy, so be it. So responsibility is a very interesting concept. Responsibility is when we start growing up. Right. Otherwise, we're just babies. You know, whatever is given to us, we take. And that's it. We, we cry sometimes, uh, hoping that some food will come and the world is in such a way that, yes, it does come. But we do live like machines. That's everything is mechanical and things happen in a deterministic kind of way. And uh, many people are quite satisfied doing that, except, of course, they cry sometimes. Yeah. So they don't realize why yeah. they cry. There's <laughs> no need to cry. They, they, it's obvious that we have potentialities. It's obvious because you have these other experiences, like uh, thinking, feeling, even intuition, which tells us constantly that, look, there is more to it than just the physical world, than just satisfying your hunger and your thirst and sexuality, and that's it. Yeah. So when it comes to the fluid nature of the material world, like obviously there's a fixed nature, like we've got buildings, chairs, tables, and then we've got the fluid nature of, you know, humans and personalities and, you know, fluid situations. Do we have the, 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 the potential as, as, as observers, as people ourselves, to be able to affect and direct, um, even at a probability level, the, the things that we create in the lives that, that we actually want? Actually, um, uh, at the probability level, we are predictable. But at the individual experience level, we are absolutely creative and we have the choice. Right. So to recognize that our life consists moment, moment to moment a choice is eventually completely growing up. 
we don't always uh, able to do that. Yeah. You know, I know, uh, you know, um, in spite of all my attempts, it's not so easy. <laughs> that part is not so easy, but I can do a little bit. And, and that itself uh, makes me like 80% happy. Um, people say that if you do um, invoke choice every moment, then you are 100% happy. That's the, we call them liberated or the great masters like Jesus or Buddha were supposed to, right. you know. And that was a pretty happy dude, I mean, those guys. I mean, you were on a cross. Your, yeah. your, your ass is totally painful, right? Yeah. And you were saying, oh, God, forgive all these people who don't, don't know what they're doing. That's yeah. pretty, pretty grown-up talking, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so you, you mentioned the G word, or you went in that direction. Um, you know, for, for a lot of people, they, you know, I think the science is quite, sciences are quite threatening to religion. You know, for obvious reasons, they've been in conflict for a very long time. Um, you know, uh, religion has their, their view on science and science has their view on religion. But what I'm curious to know from your perspective, which is very different, by the way, you've, you know, you're, you, you're the epitome of a quantum scientist, in my, in my opinion. You're so open, you know, you're, you're very receptive to other ideas and other perspectives and, and ways of thinking. So I am quite curious to hear from your perspective, what is God? Well, um, there are several ways of defining it. The way that I like the most is to define it as the creative agency of the oneness. Mm. The oneness. The creative agency of the oneness. I love yes, that. Yeah, why I like that. the oneness uh, needs a creative agency is, 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 is very clear because in oneness, nothing happens. And so um, the oneness has to create uh, limitations that, so that something happens. And in that, among the limit, as soon as you bring limitations, we have to get the idea of choice. So we create limitations like physical laws. So God operates within those physical laws. Then God doesn't retire. That's the idea of deism, where Einstein got stuck. No, then God allows the beings of further limitation, like I heard you speak speak about meaningfulness. Everything is meaningful because those potentialities are chosen which are meaningful. And then those meaningfulness and the laws are to be expressed in specific biological beings. Some biological beings are more conducive to embody the most happy, joyful archetypes. That's the idea. Right. So, so uh, God in a way, uh, is the creative agency of the unity consciousness which allows all these things to be embodied in matter. Right. Well, it's interesting when we look at um, science and religion, you know, I think, and I, I, and I don't mean to roll anyone up who's listening to this, but, you know, a lot of people have asked me, because, you know, I've been through a number of religions. I was born into um, Catholicism. I then moved into um, uh, Catholicism, then Mahakari, which was a cult. I then moved into um, Christianity um, and then Buddhism. And um, you know, people say to me, are you religious? And if I say, oh, look, I'm not religious, I'm just confused now. But when people do push the religion uh, case with me, I often say as a bit of a rebuttal, look, I, I'm, I'm philosophical in nature. 
you know, I do believe in doing good and doing the right thing, but more people have died from religious wars than, you know, from religious conflict than any other form of conflict on the planet. But what's interesting is when we look at this, you know, the science behind it, it's been the scientists who have almost developed the weapons that have enabled these people to, to, to be in conflict. So when we look at this, you know, this, this construct of where we have, you know, religious, you know, conflict at a religious level, and then we have the scientists that are equipping these conflicts to, to be in combat, at what point, you know, do you think the world's going to just, re you know, take a deep breath and fucking relax a little bit and just, uh, you know, allow things to be without conflict, you know, being involved in discussion? Do you think we'll ever reach a point where I, I that think, form I of think, conflict I will... I think we will. Um, right now, the uh, indications are that about 15% of people are ready to grow up. Uh, 15? 15. Right. And, you know, that's pretty obvious uh, number because um, 877 million people who are practicing some sort of yoga, meditation, those kind of practices. And, and that, that gives you some freedom. All these practices like yoga, for example, just, just stretching your arm, it, it's a bit surprising. But what it does, it expands your consciousness. Becoming slow expands your consciousness. Why do we find looking at a flower so wonderful? Because if we look at a flower, we, our mind slows down a bit. Oh, let me look at this beautiful thing. And that slowing down helps us to expand consciousness, and that's what we feel as happiness. So in this way, um, uh, certain stuff is better than other stuff. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> so that's how changes come. So when will changes come? People will stop fighting with each other because, you know, after a while, um, there's a threshold. Yeah. And everybody is talking about expansion of consciousness. The rest of the people become curious. And these people really do look happy. I mean, you know, the biggest impact I make in uh, my teachings is not what I speak. I mean... Come on, be, be real, Karwin. I mean, I have an accent. I am not a particularly uh, handsome person. Uh, I'm old, most of all. This is a youth-loving <laughs> culture that we live. And but still, I also saw the impact that you have on people today. <laughs> well, but because, 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 because people feel love. Yeah. And, and, and that is what I give. I give people inspiration and love. I cannot change people. I don't have I any. Mean, even God cannot change people. As we started uh, saying in the beginning, people have the free will to choose unhappiness if they want to. And God cannot change their mind. Yeah. So who am I to change their mind? But I can present to them just as this 15% can present to these other people that look, we are happy. You want to be happy? Live with us. Learn what made us happy. It's so simple. And the 15% is growing, no? I mean, yeah. it was like 5%. So you believe there is a movement for an oh, awakening? Absolutely. A Look, Abraham Maslow, when he wrote about hierarchy of needs in the 60s, he talked about people of positive mental health only about 5%. Now it's 15%. In how many years? Just about 50 years. That's amazing to yeah. me. So another 50 years, it will be like 30, 35%. And as you know, in corporations, if somebody has 30% interest, then they have to be given a voice. That's the rule. And that's the way that will gain our voice. And once that is there, that's it. 
people uh, just have to accept the fact that yes, there is a road to happiness. I still yeah. have the choice of not taking it. Yeah. But the already the acknowledgement is there. Yeah. Once you have respect for what you're doing, then the world is already changed. It's interesting you talk of love, um, you know, which is in, in some cases they're not necessarily used, you know, in scientific language. I once had a scientist explain to me that he defined love as a, as a synthesis of complementary opposites working in synchronicity. Um, I'm curious to hear from you and your perspective, like what does love mean to you uh, first and foremost? And then, you know, what is the role of love in quantum mechanics? Well, <clears throat> for me, let me let me tell you what happened in my creative exploration of love. Of course, it's quantum. Creativity is a very quantum process. Yeah. And um, there is doing, but there is also a lot of being. And a little bit analysis shows that the being is when we are really processing, but in the unconscious. And and here is where this scientist is very good observer. In the unconscious, we can admit both a stuff and its opposite, a concept and its opposite, like good, evil, both simultaneously can exist. So for me, when I was trying to love my wife, literally, this is literal. I mean, you know, we are having fights and as all married couples do, okay? And um, at that moment, you want to win the battle. So your wife is your enemy. Right? But of course, I also love. So, friend and enemy, but not simultaneously. That's the problem. So, one time we are fighting in the middle of a fight, and I have to have a travel schedule because, you know, there are demands on me. And she says, No, you shouldn't travel so much because it's not good for your health. And also, I am left by myself. And I cannot travel because it doesn't suit my body. All these arguments going on. And vicious, vicious. So all of a sudden, an idea occurs to me. You know, that Picasso has this, that famous picture, mm -hmm. Minotaur, mm -hmm. man and animal simultaneously, olive branch on the top, and the, and the animal has a dagger in his hand. So all these opposites. I've never been able to do that, but the, I, I, I knew the meaning of the picture. The picture is telling us that, look, learn to hold opposites in mm. your consciousness at the same time. Mm. So I went to the bathroom, I took a bathroom break, I went to the bathroom and started centering on my heart to bring the energy in the heart chakra, as they say. That's love energy, you know. And after I had the energy, I just um, went out again and joined the fighting. She doesn't do anything. And here is the absolutely amazing thing that just totally surprised me. My one-sided attention to the energy of love, at the same time joining the fight, somehow changed the energy, entire energy. She was not so vehement anymore, and for a change we had a very constructive discussion, not solution, but constructive discussion of the problems that are occurring and solutions, options that we have. It amazed me. So we can actually, not only in the unconscious, but in the conscious level as well, come very close to holding opposites. And at those moments, we have the capacity of choosing transformation. Salvation, I like, I like that you, you put that in there. Because one of the things that I've learned from my own journey 
um, is for me personally, I've found the, the key to happiness is being able to hold opposites at the same time. Um, and you know, oftentimes we refer to that as hindsight. You know, hindsight is something that kicks in in many cases after an event. Sometimes it can be days, weeks, months. You know, people look back at an event which they were looking at one side of, going, "Oh my God, this is the worst thing in the world." And then maybe a week, a month, a year later, they look back and they go, "Oh my God, if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't be here." And oh, I'm so grateful for this moment, right? That that actually happened. Mm -hmm. um, so, do you believe that there is a balance in everything? That everything is neutral, and everything has a good and a bad. And we, as 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 conscious beings, have the ability to choose what it means. And as we choose, I'll put in one more extra thing because that is the wisdom that grew in me. When we choose, we find that the good, we can call it good, but it's all inclusive. Mm -hmm. It includes the evil. Yeah. And that is the mistake we made. We exclude. We made them oppositional. Yeah. But they really are not. Ultimately, all is good. Yeah. So the real key to happiness is being able to see both sides and embrace both. Hold both that is at the, the same time. That is the liberation that you refer to. Uh, what I'd refer to as, you know, that's happiness. There's a, there's a tremendous power in being able to hold those, that, that concept in your mind at the same time. You know, I'm going through a separation with my wife right now. Um, one of the most painful experiences I've ever been in my entire life. But I am so grateful for the perspective that you share because it's, been, it's enabled me to navigate what would once upon a time would have been probably an incredibly destructive thing in my life, whereas mm -hmm. now, as a result of exactly what you're talking about, the, the tools that liberate us, you know, I've been able to experience uh, an incredible amount of joy in what would be considered to be an incredibly painful moment. Absolutely, and, and not at her expense either. No, at, at nobody's it, expense. It, it's all inclusive. Yeah. It all can be included. It's beautiful. So we, we refer to the quantum world. What, or, or, what is the quantum world? So quantum world is the really, literally, world of potentiality. The, in the quantum world, all is potential. And quantum world is the world of unity. Consciousness is the envelope of the quantum world. When consciousness chooses, we get actualities. If the actualities are actualities which are a little bit subtle, then Simultaneously, the material actuality also manifests, and the subtle is represented in the material actuality. So in this way, the brain makes a representation of mental thinking or meaning. The body makes representation of the energy that we feel, what some people call vital energy. So in this way, the, the world goes on as more and more representations of the ideas of consciousness, namely this archetype, these meanings, these feelings. They are all ideas of consciousness are represented in matter so that we have civilization. And eventually, this civilization represents all the potentialities of consciousness. Of course, that may not happen in one span of the universe. So there will always be some universes where this play will go on and go on and go on. So quant the quantum world is, a, is this sea of potential, this sea potentiality. Of and does everything that we experience arise from this sea? Everything that we experience arises from this potentiality and everything that we experience is ultimately the choice of that consciousness that holds the potentiality within it. 
the only thing is that consciousness is benevolent. So if we avoid certain choices, consciousness goes along. It goes along. That is why this idea that God is benevolent is so common in all religions. Every religion has that concept. If we choose to be unhappy, God allows you to be unhappy. Right. So does that mean then quantum mechanics is the study of how that sea of potential works and how it shows up? How to, in, how to investigate, how to explore all the potentialities. I find it interesting that you know, when quantum mechanics or the quantum world and quantum mechanics was first discovered and investigated, you know, there was a lot of fear because they believed it was very random and very unpredictable and very hard to understand. Has our worldview come a long way since we first investigated? And what do we now know about the quantum world uh, today that once upon a time perhaps you know, we didn't know that was you know, perhaps a little bit scary? Well, we created a lot of paradoxes. We created a lot of paradoxes in order uh, that we can maintain the same Newtonian worldview that people used to have. Ultimately, I think the fear was that the fear of uh, religion coming and taking over again. I always joke saying that the, in the West, we love sex so much that we never want to go back to the religious depression of sexuality. Fickle. <laughs> 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 but there is some truth in it too, you know. And uh, so that fear of religion taking over once again, I think that's the biggest problem. Even now, I think uh, many of my friends, they're quite, you know, how can they not be? I mean, there is no debate about the oneness. That does not require any spiritual idea. Oneness is just fact, mm. because there is a non-local communication, communication without signal, at once, yeah. instantaneous. How can I communicate instantaneously with anything that is separate from me? It got to be me. So, right? So I communicate instantly only with myself. So everything got to be myself. So now this idea does not depend on any ism, no interpretation of anything. You just go take quantum mathematics, compare it with experimental data, see that waves are the origin, they become particle, they cannot become particle out of the choice of anything that is material. So it got to be consciousness that's choosing because observer is involved. And that way we realize that we are one consciousness but it has to be actualized. It's only a potentiality. So can people be separate? Yes, they're allowed to be separate. They don't have to actualize that potentiality ever if they don't want to. All right, but by the same token, if I want to, then of course that's my privilege to access that potentiality of oneness. And the more I access it, more wonderful things happen to me. All the beautiful things, happiness, joy, meaning, purpose. So why should I live in that prison of determined machine self? It doesn't make any sense to me. Only thing is maybe ignorance. People can be ignorant of it. So I have taken it upon myself, just you have, just as you have, to bring it to the attention of everybody I can find. Like the, you know, that poem, Ancient Mariner. He has this motto that I'll tell you about how love descended on me. I was carrying this albatross and the albatross dropped away. I discovered love. And same thing, that's what we are doing. I had an albatross on my shoulder, which was scientific materialism. It fell off in the light of quantum physics. Now I want to tell everybody that, look, 
try to understand this worldview and your albatross will be gone. You'll be happy. And I think when, when we talk about, you know, waves collapsing to become, you know, material particles and through the observer effect and when the observer goes away, you know, what can be material can then turn back into a wave function. You know, this is the kind of stuff that I love to talk about because it really screws with people's perspective of reality. So what we understand about the quantum world is things live in, you know, in a sea of potential and they exist as a wave function, which is non-local and exist in superposition, which means it's not in one location, it's in as many as... Allowed by the equation. Many locations as required. And it's not until someone comes and measures it through observation or attention that those wave functions collapse and actually you know, produce the form and, and be become atoms, which you know, in clusters represent forms which could be you know, the lamp or the bottle or the table. Um, but then as soon as that form of measurement, as soon as the observer looks away, you know, we're told that that then you know, essentially re re devolves or switches back. Imme immediately becomes potentiality again. So there is no permanent world, material world sitting out there yeah. that is independent of me. It's all happening in my consciousness as I speak. It's all happening in your consciousness as you speak. Yeah. It just so happens that we agree with some of what we are experiencing because some things are a little bit sluggish in terms of how much they can spread in possibility in the brief time right. that we are taking in conversing. And that's it. That's the, you know, in our, uh, about our thoughts. Can we share them? We cannot share them. So there is no shareable reality except the material reality. That's the only shareable reality. And that, to recognize that as the ground of all being is such foolhardy. So when did that happen? It didn't happen uh, throughout history, no. It happened only in the last 60 years because some people became very ambitious in terms of being able to predict everything. What ego? <laughs> they want to predict everything. And so they assume that, yeah. okay, the, the world has to be just matter because otherwise how can I predict? It's like you throw away everything that you cannot predict. Yeah. <laughs> It kind of makes that old question, you know, when a tree falls in the forest and if no, no one's there to hear it, it doesn't make a noise. And it kind of makes us ask the question, if a tree falls in the forest and no one's there to see it, is there really a forest? <laughs> exactly. So in, in quantum physics, everything are just potentialities and there is no forest, there is no star, there is no sun, there is no moon. Everything exists in potentiality. Right. And the potentiality is very close to actuality. It's true that yeah. when I do see the sun, I'll see the sun in the same way that I have seen before. Because in this brief time, nothing happens to the sun. It's very big yeah. to, for quantum effects to make any difference. We are not saying that it makes any difference, but we are saying that regardless of that, there are potentialities. There is no permanent sun, moon, or table chairs that ever <laughs> exists. I love it. I absolutely love it. But I know that does screw with a lot of people, but I really enjoy that. Um, so. When we look at, for example, um, trying to explain um, you know, what it is that quantum mechanics is, and even going deeper, like I remember when I first um, started to explore unified field, field theory and string theory uh, and M theory and Edward Witten and, uh, and his work, and way above my pay grade, uh, I still tried my best to, to try and consume it, if anything, to just you know, uh, condition myself to some of the language. Now, Edward Witten says M theory could allude to the possibility of M meaning, you know, people ask him, what does M mean? And, you know, I saw an interview where he said, well, it could mean magic. 
So is he alluding to the fact that, you know, the quantum world is in essence quite a magical force? Well, until you um, put in uh, the actual ground of being, idea of choice by consciousness, it is sort of magical. Because if you, if you don't allow consciousness choosing, then how is it that objects are behaving this way, very mm. wave-like, whereas we never see the wave-like behavior in space and time. It always appears to be particles. So if you have the real reality is wave-like and choice is happening, and that is how I am experiencing the world that I experienced, then it would seem very magical. Because how did that happen? Mm. We say, how did the electron over, occur over there? How, when it goes through a double slit, it really shows up everywhere in the photographic plate that we put beyond them. But they should really just fall through one of the slit or the other slit. How can it go through both slits and you know, how can it be like that? Richard Feynman wrote a beautiful book called Feynman Lectures in Physics in which he repeatedly said this. When you ask how can it be like that, all the quantum physicist can answer is that don't ask. It is like that. It's like magic. So <laughs> that, in that sense, it is like magic. When we look at the word magic, you know, and I think a lot of people, you know, in the modern age, when they think of magic, they think of David Copperfield. Um, but the word, you know, magic and, and even the, the concepts such as spells, you know, they've come from, you know, um, from a lot of history. And when we look at historically who the magicians were of old, you know, they, they weren't doing magic tricks. In many, in many ways, they were almost philosophers um, in their perspective. Were these philosophers, were these magicians of old essentially the, the, the earliest form of you know, quantum you know, theoretical physicists, people who were learning how to play with reality in a way and bend reality in a way that most people thought was, ooh, spooky or, or a little bit, little bit freaky? <laughs> good connection, good, 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 good try. Um, I don't know the history of uh, magicians. So very well, but I would not be surprised um, that, that well, let's maybe get broader afield because you know I, I know in certain parts of the world we refer to them as magicians, and in other parts of the world we refer to them as as shamans. In other parts of the world, there as alchemists. Are. When you say shamans, I understand yeah. fully. Yes, okay. absolutely. So, were, are the shamans of age and of old? You know, are the alchemists of old and you know the magicians of old? Were they just you know th theoretical physicists before their time? They were trying to intuit. The physics. Even Buddha. Have Even Buddha was talking about concepts, you know, uh, concepts of, you know, emanating energy and, and cells, and you yes. know, before, you know, it was like hundreds of years later before science actually proved well, it. Quantum physics is very shamanistic or very mystical. You know, this is part of the reason. You know, when you asked in the beginning, why does the West have so much difficulty? This is the difficulty: West and North. So it's North-South dichotomy and East-West dichotomy. If we realize that no, we live on one earth and it's not a matter of where is this idea and where is that idea, it's not like that. It's just that human beings have been creative all along and just certain ideas were discovered first in one area. But the other ideas pick, other, other areas pick it up. So what happened in the South, the shamans never lost that uh, concept of the world being magical. They never discovered quantum physics. That required the Newtonian approach initially, and it just so happens that the actual quantum physics, the way things work, was discovered in the West. But it does not make the idea Western. 
It's mm. a human idea, mm. just as well, quantum mechanics has existed for as long as time. Yeah. The Westerners didn't invent it. Invent it. Yeah, exactly. They discovered it. Discovered it. Yeah. And it could have been discovered anywhere else too. But the fact that it is discovered in one place does not give it the flavor of that place only. Mm. It's human beings. You know, we have tried to prove that human beings are different in different areas of the earth for a very long time. Every attempt has failed. So why do we hold on to such notions of, you know, supremacy this, supremacy that? What's the need? All of us are human beings. Basically, same potentiality gives rise to this kind of biological body with minor differences. What role do you think um, psychedelics have played in you know, the discovery of things like quantum mechanics as an example? Because when we look at you know, shamans uh, and we look at you know, medicine doctors and, and we look at you know, tribal medicine and, 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 and you know, tribal rituals, you know, oftentimes they've introduced psychedelics as a way for people to you know, be introduced to another reality or you know, aspects of reality or aspects of themselves that they've, they've never really understood or seen before. What role do you think psychedelics play when it comes to understanding you know, some of the concepts that we talk about it is very important to recognize the role of psychedelics. You know, some people from the spiritual traditions have a natural aversion to uh, use of drugs. Yeah. What they forget is that every culture, every culture drugs have been used. Why? Because the brain develops some very definite structures. And brain has evolved for quite some time through biological huge amounts of time. And in that time, brain has developed certain circuits which takes us in very predictable way. For example, negative emotions. When we take the psych psychedelics or any mind-altering drug that is safe enough not for me to die or anything, but just alter the brain for a temporary amount of time in which these rigid structures will be relaxed. And so I'm free of them. And then I can experience once again these potentialities that I exclude because of these rigid structures of the brain. Isn't that a nice idea? Of course, there is a fallacy in that. Brain also have an addiction circuit, and yeah, so we have, to, we have to be careful. Of course. We must not be subject to those addiction circuits later on because it is not, uh, not panacea. Because what happens is that you have the experience, but at the same time, brain has also lost the logical circuits. So you cannot add logic to bring the experience into proper language that you can appreciate later. Yeah. So whatever you discovered, you have this great aha that you come you can't down. communicate it. <laughs> you don't remember a thing. Look, I almost have this sneaking suspicion that um, you know that theoretical physics and quantum mechanics was a product of a couple of very loose, you know, scientists who, you know, got a little bit bored at university and started dropping acid and started, you know, thinking and, you know, looking at science in a different way. Um, I don't know how true that is. As I said, it's just a little something that I think about. But do you think psychedelics have actually played a role uh, in furthering our understanding of reality when it comes to physicists actually you know, observing their own work through a different lens? I think, I think uh, not for maybe not to the direct uh, work of physicists, because physicists are a little bit more conservative bunch. But overall, the um, psychedelic uh, environment of the 60s and 70s, you know, uh, I think that those were the best times in America, which really 
Of course, we are paying hugely for uh, hugely for the backlash right now. Yeah. But the backlash aside, I think that liberation that happened in a way, I'm a product of that. See. I grew up at a time when the, you know, the education in England was pretty rigid. It's British education, basically. And so that's how I became a materialist. It, it all seemed so cut and dry, uh, black and white. Everything is differentiated in a very rigid way. So for that mind to be relaxed, you know, I never did um, LSD and did a little bit of drugs uh, later on. Uh, in my life, when I was already uh, searching. Um, so directly, no. But indirectly, that whole environment was one of doing experiment. My heroes yeah, right. were John Lilly, Ram Das, yeah. all those people who were uh, indeed ex experimenting with the psychedelics. And under Lilly's influence, I did a little bit of that too. Right. Uh, and it helped me to recognize this, uh, not so much that the brain circuits are loosened up, that part I already knew, but the part which is very relevant, which people must not forget, that we cannot retain, because the logic circuits are also gone, we cannot make any models in those states. Yeah, right. And it does not help, like Charles Stark does, it does not help that we have to develop state-specific science. We cannot develop any science in those states yeah, right. because the logic circuits are totally gone. I remember, you know, getting so excited. Oh, I know what the hidden variables are. At that time, David <laughs> Bohm was very popular. So David Bohm's picture came into mind and I know the hidden variables, I can see them. And then I came back to reality uh, of waking awareness. Where are those? Where is that picture? I couldn't capture a thing. Whereas my feeling was that I knew the whole thing. But I could not, uh, you know, write down anything or, or could say anything about <laughs> discoveries. That had to wait for regular waking state turnabout. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and happened a few years uh, later. But I, I cannot say that it was a result of the taking of drugs. But maybe it did loosen me up a lot. Yeah. And so I acquired more freedom nice. and became more open. So when we look at consciousness, you know, I think for a long time, most people saw the word as consciousness as being, well, I'm awake. And unconscious meaning, you know, I'm either asleep or I'm, or, I'm, or I'm unconscious. When we look at conscious now, you know, there's obviously, there's two components. There's the scientific component, which is the brain is active and, you know, working in a conscious state. And then there's the spiritual interpretation of what conscious means, which is, you know, there's a higher level of awareness of, of self, uh, and, and reality. When you talk about consciousness, like what does it mean in your world? Well, um, at once both, because consciousness has that oneness, and consciousness also manifests in the brain. So when we are awake, certainly the brain uh, is hugely important. Um, but can consciousness work without a brain? Of course, because near-death experiences now have been codified and so many people have them. So we are dead, but we are still having experiences. That means that consciousness exists, even though the brain may actually be dead. Because people can argue, you know, even in mm -hmm. deep sleep, brain doesn't actually die. Only the neocortex part is completely absent, but the delta waves show that the hindbrain is still active. Uh, in that way, uh, proving that uh, brain doesn't exist and consciousness exists has been very hard, except in this near-death experiences that started being codified about in the 70s 
that again, that liberation of that yeah, age, yeah. That, because otherwise you would not have encountered those people. They would have never have admitted that we are having these experiences. So very interesting stuff came out in that era. And of course, cardiology gets, should get some credit too. They learned how to revive a person so quickly. That helped a lot. But in effect, what we now have is a science which proves that consciousness exists even though the brain is dead. So consciousness is not a brain phenomenon by any means. At the same time, consciousness is manifested in the brain and brain is very important for making the representations of not only consciousness but all the subtle, subtle aspects of consciousness. That idea too uh, is taking hold. So, in effect, we are understanding the whole human being much better than we ever have. And this should be welcomed by everybody, the mm. spiritual traditions as well as the scientists. Because previously, undisclosed area, unexplored areas become explorable, and that is the way progress of science happens. Science has always admitted that. Science is about integrating new fields, into what we can understand before. And now with quantum physics, we are doing that. We could not possibly understand spirituality. It all seemed like magic. And now we can. We can, could not understand transformation. Now we can. Mm. We saw these people like Mother Teresa or Gandhi, but we could not understand how could these people exist? How could they live on this earth? You know, such selflessness. How can that be? It's just like electron. How can the electron be like that, going through two slits at the same time? How could Gandhi be like that, you know, give uh, his life for so many others? So it surprised us, but we could not understand. Mm. And today it surprises us, of course, because it's still hard to do, yeah. but we understand. We understand how transformation is possible. Mm. And not only that, we have the methodology all worked out. So, you know, I have followed it. I, I, I'm only partially there, but still, I know that it can happen. You can actually be loving to someone completely, unconditionally. Which is holding both sides. Uncondition that's unconditional, is both sides. Yeah. So you refer to consciousness as, as something that's measurable, so it's, a, it's an energy force, right? Well, uh, aspects of it are measurable. In the ground of being aspect, it's not measurable. But in the, aspect, in the aspect of meaning, it's measurable. In the aspect of vital energies, it's measurable. Even in the archetypal aspect, it's measurable. So as an energy? As a form of energy? That's energy, yes. So does that mean that the consciousness abides by the law of thermodynamics? So consciousness is the, we say consciousness is the potentiality of all things that you can experience as energies. We have, um, this is a huge liberation. We previously had only material energy. Now we have energy associated with life or vitality. We have energy associated with meaning. We have energy associated with values. This is a great improvement of our worldview. Mm. Before we could handle only material energies. Look at this. And now we can handle vital energies, mental energies, even supramental energy. So does this mean that consciousness is like like energy, it's, it, it's nor created nor destroyed. It's constantly present and constantly changing form. It's, it's more than that because, because the word energy still gives you the idea that consciousness is only the object. Energy is still an object. These are these things that I have mentioned, material objects, feeling objects, thinking objects, archetypal objects, these are still objects. Mm -hmm. Consciousness always has another 
part of the equation, which is the subject, the experience or itself. Mm. That you cannot generate as an energy. That you can say it is nothing like we have, we have, we can conceptualize as an object. It is really the experience or itself is the essence of consciousness, the self that experiences, that eyes that we speak of when we refer to ourselves. Because we intuit that although this I can be made an object because I can look at me looking at you, I have that ability. But if I push, push and push and push, I'll reach a place where there is no other, no more place to go. I cannot look behind it. That's the primary self. And that primary self, which all spiritual traditions have, the concept of that inner self, deep self, that self is our essence. That self has no hair, no memories. That self is not the ego self. And that self, that totally free self, is our entry door, entry door to the unity consciousness. Very important to us. And this self is now discovered as new in neuroscience. You know, when people see a external signal, we always knew that the brain waves will show a particular form, which is called P300 event-related potential. P300 because it happens 300 milliseconds after the signal. But what the new neuroscience research shows with its huge measuring capacity that is called functional MRI, mm -hmm. magnetic resonance imaging, along with simultaneous measurement of blood flow, etc., etc. So functional MRI, well, MRI, where we are seeing which areas of the brain are actually involved in that particular imaging. When you do that, we find that right about when the event-related potential that P300 wave occurs, right about then, all of the brain, all of the brain, not completely all, but different parts of the brain, all becomes active in a synchronous way. Now imagine this, the different part of the orchestra in the orchestra hall. Could they ever play by themselves together? No, they need the leader of the orchestra, right? conductor of the orchestra. And the conductor of the orchestra is actually playing the whole orchestra. So when you see such a synchronous action in the brain, you have to wonder who is the conductor, who is doing this show, and you have to immediately recognize, ah, that's the quantum self. That's the quantum self. That, that complete synchrony in the brain could not be established except for that non-local self, no personal self that self doing the job of the conductor of the orchestra. So we now have direct evidence that we have two selves. Yes, we do. When we do a simple task, like I'm talking with you, only one or two areas maximum will be involved. But when we are in this quantum self, somehow many different areas of the brain become involved simultaneously. Brain waves actually show that. High frequency gamma waves, frequency greater than 40 hertz, they show up. It's a gamma burst, a whole burst of gammas simultaneously show up just when you have that P300 wave showing up in the brain waves. It's an amazing thing. I'll tell you even more amazing. You know, people meditate for a long time 
And um, uh, earlier we saw them becoming happy and all this stuff, but no tangible evidence. Right now there is tangible evidence. They have more gammas than non-meditators. How, how do more gammas happen? Obviously, this is because they take the quantum leap to the quantum self more often than ordinary people. Ordinary people have such quantum self-experience, but they don't actually experience it, but they do occur. But that uh, no, it's not very frequent that they have, only when there is a big external event. Whereas these meditators, they have become so uh, sensitive to intuitions that's another way that this quantum self comes into play, that they take quantum beeps so often that their brain waves has an overabundance of these gamma waves. So meditation has, from what you're saying, has been scientifically proven to increase things like intuition. Scientifically proven to increase, increase intuition, increase creativity. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what, what then, when we look at consciousness and we look at transformation, which you referred to earlier, what is the role of consciousness in transformation? It, it's, it's several roles, you know. I mean, it, it's always a little bit of a mystery, though, you know. Um, like, for me, that event that happened at a conference when I felt jealous all day, and then all of a sudden this thought came to me. Could I say that I produced that thought? Those are the, you know, Carl Jung would say it's the event of synchronicity. The ocean air hits me, an external event, and an internal thought comes which transforms my life eventually. That's a synchronicity. And probably that's the best we can do. Consciousness by itself, by the design of the world, when we are ready, we have to be ready. Because I was ready. I had so much suffering, mm. so much unhappiness, I was ready. And when that readiness happens, we are sent these events of synchronicity. It's a figurative thing to say, I did that, or consciousness did that, it happens. Best way is to say it's an event of synchronicity, it happens. And uh, that is the wake-up call. We hear it. Mm. It's happening all the time, perhaps. You know, some people even theorize they're happening all the time, we just don't hear it. And in those moments, some of us can hear it, and that changes our life. And so when people talk about the collective consciousness, you know, when they add that, when they talk about collective consciousness versus consciousness, what's, what's the difference between the two based on your, your opinion from a science um, there, perspective? There are many um, aspects of this, so one has to be a little bit careful. There is collective unconscious, the yep. concept that Carl Jung gave us, that's an unconscious state. Right. And um, they are a representation of the Platonic archetype, the symbols of the collective unconscious, called Ungian archetype. That is a representation of the Platonic archetype. So, like, Platonic archetype is the fundamental unity of all the archetypes. So, you know, that unity that we are talking about, that inclusiveness, that is in the Platonic archetype. Ungian archetype, which is a collective unconscious that were created by collective memory of our ancestors in a previous era, anthropological era, um, that has the division. And the major division is good and evil. So this collective unconscious has these good evil images, and this is why 
we sometimes become so torn about the evil. And so what happens? Sometimes some of us are very skillful, just like psychics, are very skillful to hone on to certain potentialities at a distance, and they will surprise you with that. Similarly, some people who have the magical ability of delving into people's collective unconscious in such a way that they can influence the collective unconscious in choosing the evil. Look at Hitler. And in a little way, I don't want to say too much about it, but maybe even Donald Trump is an example of it. People, these people have the ability of arousing a whole bunch of people into something that is not so good. Sides with evil. Hitler's case is very clear. In other cases, it's not so clear. This is why we have to be very cautious. But it, it is a general phenomenon that you can use this division that was created by our ancestors, namely good and evil, whereas both should have been included in the same one. Mm. But the split has very bad effect on humanity sometimes. You know, mm. Right now, it's occurring in many different places, some places in reaction to other places, like terrorists came first. I'm not saying that this particular separateness that we are seeing in America um, is independent of other things that have not happened before. You know, certainly it's a reaction to, in some sense, to terrorism. This whole thing about immigration and foreign has come back to us to haunt us. We almost got rid of these ideas, you know, in the 80s, but it came back. It came back because we have not transformed. We only learned political correctness. We learned that, okay, conceptually they're not so good, they're not helpful, so we got rid of them, we thought we did, but no, they're deeper, they're in the collective unconscious. So we have to do more work, more transformational work in order to really go beyond good and evil and see good in everyone. Mm. Then perhaps the phenomenon of terrorism can even be solved. Mm, I love that. So we look at psychic phenomena, and I, I'm a, this is a, a, a subject that's very close to my heart. Um, my father was a global economist. My mother uh, was a clairvoyant and a psychic, and I, uh, I, 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 I'm obviously the product of that, which meant you know, I grew up in a, in a single family home. My mother brought me up, who, and she used to constantly say to me, you know, oh, you've got the gift. From a very early age, she would say that I would intuit information and, and be able to intuit situations and things. Uh, but then I started to see, you know, my friends would come over and my mum would be able to, you know, read my friends and say things that would freak them out and to the point where my friends would say things like, oh my God, your mum's a little weird uh, because she does that. And then I started to realise that this thing that I had wasn't a gift, it was actually something that was considered weird. And so I kind of stuffed this thing down. Yeah. Uh, and it wasn't until I, you know, I was in my late 20s when I really started to explore, you know, quantum mechanics, theoretical physics, particle physics. Uh, and I started to realise, holy shit, this, this isn't some weird foreign fringe concept, there is actually quite rational and actually scientific explanations for this mm -hmm. phenomena. Mm -hmm. uh, and I started to re-embrace it into my life. And not only did I start to re-embrace it into my life, I actually started to share my experiences and, and even share my process of, of intuiting information and you know intuition and psychic you know to me intuition and psychic they're almost brother and sister you know it's psychic. very similar very yeah, similar. Absolutely. And I'd almost look at psychic you know the psychic ability as, as a highly attuned intuition. 
But when we look at psychic ability, when we look at intuition, how on earth has you know, quantum mechanics been able to you know, validate this as actually something that is, is very real and it's not just this coincidental thing that sometimes no. happens to, to of people? Of course, the, the coincidental things and these things are of a similar origin. Everything comes from that one concept that is basic. That's the concept of unity consciousness, non-locality. The ability for us to uh, connect to events spontaneously without any elapsed time. Because usually events come to us taking a little time through signals. Non-locality is without signals. So psychics get their ability by their special connection to this non-local consciousness in which they can operate. Only for certain things. Creative people, on the other hand, operate with the same non-locality, but in a different way. Well, this is true. And creativity is a form of intuition. Creativity is a form of psychic ability. Yes. Uh, And is this where entanglement, is entanglement what really explains this phenomenon? Entanglement is very basic in both. In the case of um, psychic, we talk about entanglement of two people between which the information is taking place. But look at the case of the... Keyword uh, being permission, yeah. Creative person. It's also entanglement because... Ordinarily, we are detached with our ego and the quantum self. We have lost the connection. But in the creative work, we are constantly jumping into the quantum self and coming out of it. So in that sense, it is also an a expression of not only a discontinuity, that is the expression that we get immediately, that it's a jump from known to the unknown, quantum leap, but it's also quantum leap to what? Quantum leap to non-local being. Here we are very local, connected with just the local brain and local habits and stuff. And there we are completely free cosmic being. How did that happen? It happened because we took a discontinuous leap from the local being into the non-local being, which is the quantum self, right? So at once it's also an entry point to non-locality. Mm. So psychics and, 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 and creatives are not all that different, except that the psychics do things in such a way that the discontinuity aspect is suppressed. Creative people do things in such a way that the non-locality aspect is suppressed. But in both, both aspects are present. Does that mean from what you've seen in your research is uh, psychic ability, uh, look, I'm, I'm convinced from my own experience that you can teach people how to become more intuitive. Uh, and I've even had people say to me, you know, you can teach people to become more psychic. Based on what you've seen in science, is you know intuition, is psychic ability, is creativity, is it a, is that a learnable process? Yeah, I think so. I think that that we can become, we can learn to become more sensitive. The first part of it actually is very clear, because the mind lies. We know that. We all know mm. that mind has the habit of at least doing white lies because it wants to please. Mm. You know, I want to please you when you ask me, Amit, do you like me? I said, yes, I like you. Of course I like you. But inside I know that, well, maybe I don't quite like you. But I tell the lie because I want to please you, right? In that way. So um, mind we know cannot be trusted. So how do you know that an intuition is really trustworthy? Because we make a lot of, we give it a lot of weight, right? We, We pursue what we intuited sometimes for years, right? We want to trust it. How do I trust it? We trust the feelings in the gut for men and the feelings in the heart for women. That's what we trust. We trust the feelings. 
So how do we develop sensitivity to psychic ability or creativity? By developing sensitivity to our feelings and the chakras. It's as and simple as that. Is that in essence developing a level of awareness around our inter- some of our internal organs? Right. It's developing a sensitivity. Right. Which uh, can be, I guess, learned through practices like meditation, you know, which is a mindfulness. Yeah, except that you have to be, we have to meditate on the chakras. Of course. Yeah. So I've heard you mention ego a couple of times. So I'm curious to know from, you know, from a, from a theoretical physicist, and I don't look at you as a theoretical physicist, I look at you as a, you know, as a theoretical spiritual physicist, if anything, you know, because you are so open in your nature. But from your perspective, what is the ego? Ego has two aspects of it. One aspect is absolutely essential, and that happens in a very didactic way by modification of the quantum equations that govern our mind and our vital energies. This is the aspect we call character. A bunch of learned traits, traits that I pick up, like you are a very good logical thinker as well as very intuitive person. And both of these are part of your character. Similarly, I have certain character elements that is part of me. So that one aspect of the ego, a learned bunch of patterns that I can live and relive and relive and use and reuse and reuse and like that. And then there is this aspect where I try to please you and use only part of my character but not another part of my character. Or I misrepresent my character a little bit. I encounter uh, somebody that I want to please and I don't express the fact that I have something too that he doesn't need to know that I'm hiding from him because I want to please him. We do that so often. So we adopt different kind of persona. Like with our parents, we'll be one kind of person. We'll be a very obedient child. We are very far from it actually when we interact with a friend then we would be nowhere in that obedience mindset that we present to our parents. So these are called our personas. So we, sometimes we have the children persona, sometimes we have the parent persona, very authoritative, sometimes we have just the friend persona quite open to the various aspects of the friend. And similarly, various aspects of me that I'll expose to a friend but certainly not to parents and not to children and certainly not to our enemies. But these various personas, notice what they're doing. They're introducing a certain amount of inauthenticity in who we are, even in the sense of who we are in the conditioned state of the character. We are denying parts of the character. I may have an evil character, I'm hiding it from you. I may have a good character I'm hiding from an evil person whom I want to present the fact that, oh, I'm so strong, I'm so macho, I can take you on and all this. But inside I'm completely different, right? So we have this hiding habit of various personas, inauthentic habits of various personas that um, interferes with our behavior a lot. And uh, therefore the ego is ego, character, persona. To make it authentic is very important because in creativity we come in touch with the quantum self which only recognizes authenticity. Quantum self doesn't acknowledge the 
personas. So how do we approach creativity then? We have to become a certain amount of authentic. As authentic we are, the better it is our chance of interacting with the quantum self. Mm. So authenticity is a very important aspect of transformation. So with what you're referring to the ego there, so and as it does... As we dissolve the ego, do we become more authentic? Uh, that is, of course, one way, but that would be a very harsh way. Right. We can become authentic another way, which is to drop those personalities which are incongruent with my character. Like, you keep the good personalities. It's okay to um, um, keep the personalities which are compatible with my character, because those personalities are not going to hurt me or hurt another person. It's the, it's the hiding that we do of the part that is harmful to a person, but actually I have it, that introduces inauthenticity in me, also a, uh, inauthenticity in the relationship, because the relationship is subject to the fact that I have not exposed myself to the person. The person likes me, but only because I only present my good side not the unacceptable side to this person. That's what makes me inauthentic, that makes the relationship inauthentic. We just give up the inauthentic aspect of it. If we have a defect, you know, um, we just admit, okay, I'm not so great in this area, please forgive me, but I'm working on it, but I have not, you know, so, you know, some, some spiritualists um, and philosophers and, you know, people in, in, in the spiritual space, they talk about the, the ego, you know, some people are very, um, they talk about the ego as, as something that we're in conflict with and some, in some cases something that we're, we're fighting against, which is not something that, that sits well with me. And there are others that, you know, talk about the, the ego as being this um, uh, third-party entity that occupies, you know, our sense of self that, you know, is often just trying to protect us from pain and can lash out when it's in pain in order to you know, project and reflect what's happening to it. And they say that in order for us to ascend to the highest level of enlightenment, we must you know, be on the journey to dissolve this ego. And you know, I guess when people talk about dissolving the ego, they're, they're basically saying they talk about the removal of the ego. Yeah, what, they are. Yeah. They're, they're even more directly, mystics talk about killing the ego. They're right. directly talking about getting rid of the ego. Okay, that is one way, certainly. You can be completely authentic and you have only quantum self left, so nothing of the ego. But imagine what happens to you. If you really, really take it seriously that you get rid of the ego, all the things that you have learned, you cannot go to the bathroom. Think oh, wow. about it. You will make mess everywhere. You will be like a child. You don't know where to go to the bathroom anymore. You cannot sit on the toilet seat. You will forget all that. So the quantum self is useless without the ego? Quantum self is useless about anything that requires a form in the actual world in which we live. This right. is why we are conditioned. Right. We have to learn all this, remember? We have to learn all this. And we have been learning this over many lifetimes, perhaps. So being conscious of how we shape our ego is something that's important, but the removal... Something that is very important. Ego right. serves a de very definite purpose in creativity. I became aware because I worked on creativity a lot, on my own creativity and also developing a theory of creativity. And I found that without the ego, the quantum self is totally useless. 
how would we even look if we could not have this conversation? We are talking about wonderful stuff, agreed. The inspiration is there and we can each feel the other's inspiration, that's wonderful. But even to give the language to the inspiration, we need the ego. Right. <laughs> Otherwise, I would be saying, you will be saying. <laughs> And even that requires... And we'll just be making wave functions between each other. <laughs> <laughs> so people who say those kinds of things, they just have not thought about it carefully. Right. So when we look at, you know, um, you know certain theories of uh, evolution um, and even ecology, it points to the fact that everything has a purpose. You know, everything from the smallest organisms and bacteria up to the largest apex predators, you know, everything serves a purpose for the, for the world and the universe to work. So what, what do you think our purpose is as humans here on this planet? Well, purpose, of, uh, of course, it has undergone some evolution. Yes. So when we are hunters and gatherers, basically we are just living to survive. Because the outside challenge was so much that uh, if we didn't pay attention to the outside world and learned about the outside world, we would be totally prey to these wild animals or environment in some other ways we could not survive. So the survival necessity made, made, made it sure that we only manifest the physical and understand the physical world first. We put the physical world first. So mind was busy giving meaning to the physical. That's the physical mind. We start like that. But then uh, we settled down a little bit. We discovered garden agriculture. We had hoes in our hand and men and women could hold their hands together and do the gardening, grow our own food. We have developed a family structure. We learned a little bit about emotion. We started fighting and loving. All these are emotions. So we are uh, vital mind. We are looking at the feeling aspect of ourselves. And then we discovered large-scale agriculture. All of a sudden, we discovered, ah, we can now, some of us, not everybody. We don't have to be in the field anymore. We, we have, We've got we are, more free some time. Of us, only some of us. Yeah. The landowners yeah, yeah. don't have to be in the yeah. field anymore. We and can that, now pursue other things. And, and, and that gives us the freedom to look at thoughts themselves. Right. And uh, so the meaning era mind era, mental era begins. That's the beginning of civilization, we call it, about 12,000, 10 to 12,000 years ago. And, and we are doing that ever since. Yeah. But more recently, you notice, and quantum physics is just the latest evidence for it, more recently, even like you know, 200 years ago, 18th century, we are discovering democracy, we are discovering capitalism, we are discovering liberal education. What are these things? These things are not only about meaning processing, they take us to a higher level. By processing meaning, we are also processing intuitions and creativity and we are manifesting, uh, of course creativity was there also in the cave people, but in a very minor dosage. Now we have major dosage of creativity that has entered our civilization. I'll forget this last 60 years, which is a little bit confusing because Materialism all of a sudden took over the psyche, you know, for a creative crisis, what I think of it. But except for that, we really have been uh, very creative in the last 300 mm. or so years, much more so than previous times. And that is happening because we are more into the archetypes, more into the intuitive domain. Never before we and have been 
And we're at a place in time where we have more time to do that. More time to do that and, 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 and more of the uh, efforts to do that has been codified. Yeah. We, we began to, the creative process has been known for almost 100 years now. You know, it was discovered in 1924, first time. Does that mean with where we're headed, you know, with automation and robotics and artificial intelligence and, you know, we're, fa we're facing, a, you know, a few issues, obviously an overpopulation issue, but also a, a human redundancy issue. Um, and, you know, and many people are quite fearful of the fact that, you know, at some point there's going to be a, a, an awful amount of human beings that aren't going to have any work. You know, and people like Elon Musk and I think it's Jeff Bezos are talking about the importance of, um, you know, a monetary system where people are just paid from the community in order to live. <laughs> um, you know, and it's kind of crazy, but when we think about it and we discuss like, the evolutionary concept of purpose, you know, does that mean that we're potentially heading in the direction whereby at some point humanity's purpose will be just to self-actualize because many other functions will be taken care of? No, I don't think it will happen that way. We are forgetting the intermediates that consciousness uses. It's not matter and then consciousness, but in between there is the vital energies, there is mental meaning and mm -hmm. archetypal values. And who says that they cannot be subject to money and buy and sell? I am selling uh, archetypal value when I present love to a group of people who don't know me and mm -hmm. they're feeling love uh, talking to me or hearing me talk. How is that? I mean, isn't that, I mean, and, and I get paid sometimes too. So it's a making a living, I could say that. Mm -hmm. Not the main objective because uh, it, it just ceases to be important that way. But nevertheless, one can make a living by uh, selling if the stigma is not attached. Of course, we attach stigma because we have prejudice that love cannot be subject to buy and sell. But actually, people who love, they have to eat too. Yeah. So what is the... Well, is um, it, well, the way I see it, like buy and sell is just another form of love. Like it's another form of value. Yeah, it know? can be like, looked upon that way. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. Absolutely. You know? So as soon as you get the stigma out of money, that yes, money is neutral. It can be yes. used for good, also for bad. Yeah. You know, people can buy weapons, of killing weapons with money. But people also should be able to buy love then. That will balance it out. And the, I bet you, if, if we started this process, then these terrorists will lose a major market because, yes, they can buy weapons of hate, but people also can buy love from these people who have become human capital. And by engaging that capital again and again and again and again, we generate so much love that the terrorist state will be overcome in no time. And that is the way to fight terrorism. So we, we, you know, many people talk about the duality of life and, you know, that we can't know, how do we know love if we don't know war? You know, also, how can we know love if we don't know how? How do we know peace if we don't know war? Um, and it, to me, it's kind of a dry argument because I guess it's looking at the expression. How do we as a species stand a chance if we can't learn to express the duality of life in, in, in healthy ways? Well, the duality is built into us. I mean, remember we talked about this negative emotional brain circuits. Yeah. If we didn't have them, many of us would, would go blissfully without ever knowing what a negative emotion is like. But of course, they're built into us. So the duality is built into us. Not only that, it's a one-sided because there is more negative emotional brain circuit in the brain than there are positive emotions. In fact, uh, that is a problem. 
Is that a survival mechanism? It, it is a problem because, you know, positive we have to intuit. Right. So some people who don't want to intuit, they're stuck with only the negative. Except they know a little bit of positivity of pleasure. And women are very fortunate. They have the maternity circuit. That is the unconditional love built into uh, them because they have to do it that way with their children. It does not expand to other people, but to children, at least they know some flavor of that unconditional love. That flavor is the same. We, of course, have romantic love, so there's a little bit of that built into us too, so we cannot complain too much. We can hold that thread and, like Ariadne's thread, we can follow it to unconditional love. But for the mother, it's simpler, because the mother has it uh, much more for a much more uh, longer period than uh, romantic love uh, for ordinary people, right? But, but what I'm saying, though, is that these are still very narrow avenues, whereas the negative emotional pain circuit is a very large uh, contingency that you have to deal with every day, you know? I, um, uh, there is some money over there, and I look at it, and you look at it immediately, oh, I got to get it before Karen gets it, right? And, and that's the way we think, and therefore we compete. We don't realize, but we can also say, hey, there is some money there, let's go and buy some food and share it. Easily we could do that, but we don't. We become competitive, no, I have to get it. Or you say, you have to get it, and we start fighting, right? You said something really interesting, like the brain is wired for more negativity than it is positive, posit more negativity than positivity. And we, we substitute that or, or we, uh, we, we balance that by intuiting high levels of you know, positivity. So does that mean that one of the keys to becoming you know, more fulfilled, more at peace and more happy is to open up that level of intuition so that we can experience more of the positive aspects of life? And we have to do more though. So initially, the best way to combat the negative tendencies is to build brain circuits. Mm. And this is why the good books are very good. We read Jesus' teaching and we can learn to love in a certain way. And we should not be ashamed of it. We should be very pleased with it. Because Jesus says, love your friend, neighbor. Love your neighbor. That's the first stretch. So we love our neighbor the way we see how, maybe take a cup of sugar to, you know. Just day before yesterday, my neighbor, I have been living in the, I changed houses. So in this house I'm living for the last entire year, and I've never seen this woman. She has never seen me. All of a sudden we meet because she's checking her mailbox, and we smile at each other and we say, you know, I'm your neighbor, I'm your neighbor. <laughs> and. Um, so we, we became momentarily what in quantum physics we say entangled, right? And for a moment we were one. So this is the thing, that we can in this way gradually get into a kind of a positivity that did not exist before. And if I do that often enough with our neighbors, we make a brain circuit. Love your neighbor is really very valuable way to explore love initially. Eventually, you have to do it unconditionally. She doesn't have to be my neighbor in order for me to smile at her. In fact, I'm very pleased that I smile at everybody. Not everybody smiles back at me, but it doesn't matter. You know, that's the thing, no? You, yeah. you smile at somebody and then she doesn't smile and then you get hurt. Oh, 
Oh, look at that rudeness. No, nothing like that. You are smiling because of your own happiness. The other is not smiling. That's a privilege. Why should everybody have to smile at you? So, you know, and that's the unconditional loving. It does not depend on the response of the other. But that stage cannot be reached overnight. We have to begin with, okay, so this person smiled when I smiled. Good. And because she is my neighbor, she recognized me that, okay, this is my neighbor. I better say hello. Good start. What is the advanced stages? At one point, Jesus says, love your enemy, because anybody can love a friend. That's the advanced stage of loving. We were talking about that before. Can we hold the dagger as well as energy in my heart? That's the training in the eventual um, case. After that, Jesus stops teaching you, because after that, it's only unconditional love, creative quantum leap. So after that, it's different. But this brain circuits of positive emotions is very important to build in the initial stages of our exploration of transformation. Hmm. Then the negative circuits will be at bay, at least substantially. Interesting, that's amazing. So when we look at language, like when we look at, as an example, uh, the alchemists of old, the shamans of old, um, you know, the, the, the witch doctors in some cultures and, and even what we've referred to as the magicians in other cultures. One of the things I've observed is that, you know, lang rituals around the use of language with a level of frequency, repetition and intensity seem to correlate in all of these, you know, these, these different, um, I guess you'd call them disciplines. So in your experience, how important is language when it comes to you know, engaging with the quantum world in order to increase the probability of, of creating a form which is in line with, you know, perhaps something we would like to attract into our own life. Language is very important. For example, I'll give you one example that I'm really trying hard to remove from people's vocabulary and ambiguity that has entered into our um, vocabulary for quite a long time. The ambiguity between mind and consciousness. Many people refer to uh, mind, use the word mind to refer to consciousness. Whereas um, we need to distinguish two aspects of how they use the word mind. They use the word mind both for consciousness, namely the whole thing, as well as for the part of consciousness that processes meaning, as opposed to brain. So we have mind-body problem, which is consciousness body problem, consciousness matter problem, as well as mind-brain problem. How does the brain process mind? Namely, the make representations of meaning, memory basically. These are two different aspects. One is a much more limited mind, the other one is the whole enchilada. So we should use different words for them. We should have the one word consciousness, and then another word, mind, for the meaning processing part of consciousness. If this distinction is made, a huge uh, benefit has been gotten because some things would immediately be more clear. Like we say, um, mindfulness. What do we really mean? Is it mind in the meaning-giving aspect or is it mind in the consciousness aspect? Of course, it's mind in the consciousness aspect. You are not really watching the meaning-giving capacity of watching the capacity of being aware, that capacity which exists in your consciousness. 
So in that way, if we learn to use unambiguous terms, then I think our overall capacity for engaging with transformation will become much easier. There's a lot of confusion, you know? I, I have asked people direct questions. Okay, what is your understanding of mindfulness? And, and they, they, can, they can see that mindfulness is not about objects. Mindfulness is about looking at your subject, you, the experiencer. They cannot see that because of this ambiguity. When we say mind, we associate that with thought. But in this context, mindfulness is not awareness of thought. It's awareness of the thinker more. You, you've referred to unconditional love a number of times. Um, I'm, interesting, I'm interested in the concept for a range of reasons. Uh, one, because it's a term that I think gets thrown around a lot without a lot of real, deep, connected understanding. Uh, and secondly, because my own journey with unconditional love has been really quite an interesting, interesting one. Um, you know, uh, the first instance that I can refer to is I actually had a friend of mine that was jailed for a violent crime. Um, and the interesting thing was this guy was the most unviolent person you could ever consider. You know, he was just one of these guys, regular guy, and flipped his lid and you know committed a, a violent crime and got you know sent away for for a very long time, fifteen years. And what was interesting was to see my internal response when it happened, like the desire to judge, uh, the desire to, you know, to really condemn, um, but also the awareness of that process going on. But then also the observation of seeing other people judge, other people condemn, and other people, you know, uh, extradite and and move away from. And um, I feel very blessed for being going through the experience because he really taught me a level of unconditional acceptance and love because I didn't abandon him. You know, there was a group of us that stood by him. You know, and stayed with him. Not that we um, uh, condone the act that he did, but we know that you know the act doesn't represent the individual. You know, our behaviour doesn't represent the person. And you know, he really gave me an introduction to the ability to love someone for who they are, not for what they've done, regardless of what they've done. And it was a real conscious challenge, but it really became clear when my son was born. You know, I think that happens for a lot of parents. You know, they, this being comes into our world and, you know, oftentimes these beings are, in many cases, they grow up to be and to reflect the, the disowned parts of ourselves that we haven't fully accepted so that they can bring it to our attention so that we can heal. And, you know, my son has really taught me a level of unconditional love that goes beyond that I had for my friend that I never actually thought was possible. Yes. But I'm curious to know from your perspective, because it is a term that's becoming a lot more uh, um, pop, popular. Uh, but what does, in the context of your world, what does unconditional love mean? And, and how do we achieve a level of unconditional love where it allows us to in, have more peace in our life uh, as, as a product? Well, so, um, you know, we talked about making love circuits in the brain already. So now let's talk about what do we do next. So love circuits of the brain is um, useful because I have learned certain routines that expresses love, which is nice. Just as uh, what is negative emotional brain circuits. We are torn by these energies, and these energies are expressed in terms of violence or something that will do harm to another person. Similarly, love circuits will allow us to do something that is good for the other person. But still, it learns something. So how do we go beyond that? This is, this is the question. We express it very loosely by saying, okay, without imposing any condition. But if you think about it, what does that mean? Well, it's very hard. Very hard, very, very hard. hard, very hard. You, know, you have to actually species. go through the expression, go through the actual experience. 
So I'll again go back to what happened to me, my own experience. So my own experience was that the realization that happens is more of the type uh, that can be expressed in this way, that I learn to value the other person just as I value me. This is still similar to mm. what Jesus said already. Mm. Love your friend as you love yourself. Almost that. Not quite that. A little more than that. Because not only love, but you really value the other person. You respect the other person. Uh, so it's a relationship of respect. Tangled hierarchy makes it even better. It's a relationship where there is complete two-wayness, and we know that when there is two-wayness, we really become one at a very deep level, even deeper than non-locality. We really acquire a self. You become myself, like that romantic love that we have that experience. You become so much of me, I can give my life for you. If there, not a theoretical thing. I can only prove it when you are being taken over by some oncoming vehicle and I really take a risk on my life to save you. Only in that moment you can tell, otherwise it's just a theory, right? So that is the thing. We have to allow ourselves to do these spontaneous things, intuitive things. That's what means to be in a tangled hierarchical relationship with somebody else. I surrender to the intuitive being that I have within me, namely the quantum self, to that quantum self to come and take action. I surrender the ego completely to that level of action. It's hard to do. Is it possible? Yes, it is possible. It is possible. And that is what we call unconditional love. Live in a tangled hierarchical moment-to-moment -moment situation with somebody else. And it is possible to live that way. We don't live that way for routine things. It's not that we live moment-to-moment -moment for going to the bathroom or eating, you know, those things we don't have to do moment to moment. Moment to moment living is about this intuitive living. Mm. When the necessity arises to serve an archetype, the demands of that archetype, if I love you unconditionally, then you are me and I am you. And then I really would like to do the thing I just described, namely if a car comes and tries to kill you, I would rather die myself than having you killed. And that's the, uh, that's the intuition that uh, I have to uh, allow to happen. How important is it to be able to unconditionally love self first before we can unconditionally love someone else? Absolutely important. So in the, in the practice that I used to do, uh, I had to uh, integrate my navel uh, chakra with my heart chakra because men have a preponderance of reliance on the navel chakra because, you know, they grow up by constantly being told to be independent. Right. Whereas women, they, have, they are constantly told to serve their little brother or older brother or parent. You know, other love is emphasized. For men, self-love is emphasized. So we have a little bit of over-acknowledgement uh, of the navel chakra, but not so much acknowledgement to the heart chakra. We have to balance those two. That's a prerequisite before you can experience the uh, self of the heart. And really, love is a lot 
for experiencing the self of the heart. Until that happens, really love remains a lot theoretical rather than practical. Can you actually do it without having a heart taking over? Because the brain will stop you. This incident that I was just trying to describe, that, okay, you were, a car is about to, you know, I take a risk to save your life. Brain would not allow me. Brain's conditioning is too thinking-based. It just cannot allow that kind of thing. But the heart can. We do absolutely impossible things for the brain to take part with our heart. This is why we depend so much on women to lead us into the realm of the heart, which is coming. I think that as we, as we um, more and more graduate towards transformation, it will automatically be that we will certainly value this, what we call woman's quality, woman's value, you know, mm. the loving, as also everybody's value. That would be a very good thing for human civilization. That would be an amazing thing. So I want to go in an area that, you know, and, and one of the things I love about this conversation with you is this isn't a normal conversation with a theoretical physicist. You know, we're not sticking to the, the typical subjects, which is what I, I love and I really enjoy our conversation. Um, but I'm curious to know, you know, because you are, you, you are very experienced across a wide range of areas when it comes to different spiritual practices and philosophies. A spiritual practice that I've found very interesting from a creative perspective is Tantra. You know, and the use of um, you know breath uh, and sexual energy in order to charge a being up to be able to access higher levels of you know what they refer to as super you know uh, super super intelligence or super I can't remember the exact word Supra, high levels supramental you can call it yeah supramental um, and also to be able to you know increase the power to create you know, by using sexual energy as a tool to generate force to be able to manifest from the quantum realm. Um, do you have any insight or any experience on the use of Tantra as a, as a tool of, you know, of quantum creation? I have a little bit, but it happened by what in the spiritual parlance one says, God's grace, rather than my effort. So I was at Esalen, this was like 1981. And although I had been married to an American woman uh, for already seven years, I still was very Indian in my prudishness, very prude. So Esalen is famous for its nudity, of course. It has hot tubs, and everybody bathes in the hot tubs completely naked. So I wouldn't go near the hot tubs because, you know, for me, yeah, <laughs> right? So um, what happens is that, uh, but I'm guest lecturer in a John Lilly workshop. Um, so I'm doing that. And uh, this uh, meditation group, which are followers of Bhagwan Rajneesh, uh, now um, he was living in Oregon actually at that time, uh, close to that. So he had a lot of followers in California. So these people were arranging a Rajneesh meditation. And so I said, I'll go, because after all, I'm a consciousness researcher, and sure, you know, any practice is a good practice. So I go, and the uh, people, uh, the person who is leading, uh, he explained the uh, practice. So we shake our body first, and then we um, do slow dancing. Oh, no, shake our body, and then we stop. 
and we, we meditate on that stopped state for a while, just not do anything. And then we slow dancing, again some activity, and then we again sit down and meditate. So actually it is the do be, do be, do practice. Mm. Do and be, do and be. Mm. But I didn't know it at that time. So shake, fine, no problem. And then stop. Okay, so kept us. I, I had one foot raised, so it was pretty tough to stay like that for uh, three or so minutes. But then he says, dance. But you have to dance closed eye. So I'm dancing closed eye. Is this Kundalini dancing at this point? Is well, it, let's no. see what happens. Okay. <laughs> so I, I'm dancing closed eye. And of course, closed eye, you know, everybody's dancing freestyle, rock and roll. That's the only dance I know. And so I bump into somebody. So naturally, I open my eyes, and there is this two beautiful bouncing boobs. <laughs> Damn. Remember, I'm Indian, and I'm prude. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but still a young man. Yeah. So naturally, I get a physical reaction, and I'm totally embarrassed. Oh, my God. And what do you do? Fortunately, the um, person who was leading uh, just coincidentally says, okay, stop and meditate. So I thank God and I started sitting down and started hiding my condition somehow and meditate. <laughs> but what can I say? The picture of the boobs just <laughs> kept coming and kept coming and kept coming. And I'm getting totally, 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 totally embarrassed. In that moment of embarrassment, energy, which I had no idea at the time, I was still a materialist, but some movement of something which I can only describe as energy rises from my anus, just as they say, to about just about the throat chakra. That was my Kundalini experience the first time. Um, after that I had, but nothing as pronounced as that. It was a beautiful experience, exactly like they say. Energy seemed to have risen from the um, feet of my pants to all the way to the throat. Wow. Did I become more creative after that? Throat chakra is associated, you know, my romantic mind says, yeah, it must because, you know, 81, yeah, after that I started writing uh, books and stuff. Before then, just one book I wrote, but nothing special, a textbook. So one might say that a um, little bit. And um, after that, I tried to, to do uh, some of the Kundalini practices that people talk about, like, uh, you know, slow sex and keeping ejaculation yeah. from happening. Not very successfully, I must say. So my tantric practice, um, I tried for years, but never really Active, active tantric practice never really gave me too much of experience. I did even work with a teacher for a while who could move energies. Right. Oof, you have to see him in action. He would move his little finger like this. Mm. And especially women were so much affected. They would have like, ooh, ah, ooh, ah. Yeah. So, so create I orgasms without touching them. Yeah. Yeah, I'm saying. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. And I initially, I didn't trust him. Yeah. So one day he did it to me. 
אני אהיה... 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 Look, mom, no hands. What a party trick. So people have, people have various kinds of abilities that they can indeed cultivate. Just as, you know, we can cultivate creative mm. ability, transformative ability, similarly moving these vital energies that we see Qigong masters perform even on film, you know, uh, they're all true. That people just have these kinds of abilities. That's amazing. Amir, I have to say, as we, as we draw to the end of this conversation, um, there's a little bit of, I don't think it's sadness, but it's, it's uh, I, I could talk to you for hours. <laughs> I could talk to you for hours. But the, the one question that I have left um, is a little bit ambiguous, and I know, I know you like ambiguity because it helps people fill in the blanks for themselves. But I'm curious to know from your perspective how, you know, what your understanding, what you've, because you've been exposed to so much in your life, you know, you really have, you know, from everything from, you know, mysticism to spirituality to, you know, many aspects of science. And obviously, you know, this, this podcast, this filming is all about, you know, uh, helping people explore human potential, you know, through, through superhuman concepts. Uh, and I'm curious to know from you, what does superhuman mean to you and how can we use you know your knowledge to ha- perhaps gain higher levels of superhuman being well um, to me the quality of um, loving is a little bit of the quality of the superhuman being um, similarly if I could appreciate the beauty of everyone uh, You know, there is nothing, conceptually it's very clear, there is nothing that is ugly in the mm. world. Because ugliness was eliminated. Only beauty. Archetype is beauty. Includes every shape or form of human beings, animals, things. And it's funny why we permit of certain shapes in animals and love it. You know, dogs are really, from a human point of view, dogs are ugly. But we don't experience dogs as ugly. We experience that as very beautiful. We experience kids as very beautiful. We don't, I mean, hardly any person would say a kid is ugly. Why do we then get into this ugly beauty? Of course, on the basis of sexuality. Something in our sexuality, the way those circuits are, a certain way that a woman is built is considered conducive to the sexual circuits. So I get a sexual kick, and that is where my sense of beauty, ugly, come from in a large sense. In other places, I call ugly like polluted air is ugly. It's a mm. utilitarian thing. I can breathe better, so I go to an open place like Oregon where I live. I say, oh, this is this is such beautiful air and polluted air, I say, oh, this is such an ugly thing about this big city. Uh, utilitarian, at least understandable. Mm. But why do you do this to human beings? We don't judge the utility. An ugly mathematician would still say, oh, he is ugly. But suppose I could overcome it. Mm. Wouldn't that be a supramental ability, a superhuman ability? So I think it's the ability to express the archetypes and better yet if we can express them in a tangled hierarchical way, in the intuitive moment-to-moment way, not by prejudged. Because prejudged is easy. I yeah. just condition myself to not 
use the word ugly, that's politically correct, that's useless, but not even think the word ugly, not even feel the word ugly. I can condition myself that way. It will still be a circuit. But if I can spontaneously act like, mm. I do not have the distinction of beauty and ugly. Wouldn't that be nice? Mystics do that. Mm. You know, there was a mystic named Ramakrishna in Kolkata at some uh, point of history. Um, 18th century, 19th century. And uh, his disciple, Vivekananda, he used to say, my teacher has the most beautiful eyes. What does that mean? Everybody's eyes are beautiful, other uh, disciples would say. Vivekananda would say, you don't understand. My teacher has lost the ability of seeing ugly. Mm. Everybody is beautiful for, to him. And that's what I think makes his eyes the most beautiful eyes in the world. I love that. So it is that what I would like to see in the world. Mm. It is that I think defines the superman, superwoman. Not this Wonder Women and yeah. Batman and Superman. I mean, okay, <laughs> I enjoy those movies too, or I did. Um, but, you know, that, that touches a point, but only to the extent that, yes, they fight the evil and all right. It's not such a bad idea. I, f I feel very blessed at the age of 15, someone pulled me aside once um, at a school, it was a teacher, and he said to me, Kerwin, everyone is beautiful, you just need to look at them for long enough. Yeah. Um, and that's stuck. And yeah. I've actually utilized, I, I, like I, it's actually become a part of my, just my, my processing. Like if I see someone that perhaps, you know, you might want to judge as being not beautiful to the eye, and I've seen there's enormous power in just looking at them and just going, you are beautiful. and then. The, the more we look, the more we see, you know, the true selves of others and the more we can actually, you know, see real beauty and, you know. And what does that tell you? That tells you that the not appreciating the difference is what is eternal. Mm. So the more I look at you, the more your beauty comes out. That means that the beauty is the eternal beauty. Mm. Ugliness is temporal insistence on the part of some of my circuits that I live also, <laughs> right? That's so why, do, why do you start with the temporality? Why yeah. not uh, stay with the permanent depression which we all have about the other? Namely, other is beautiful, other is loving, other is all the good things in the world. Ahmed. I have to say this has been a, one, of the, one of my highlights of my career so far to be able to spend this time with you. Bless you. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. It is also for me. Thank You're you. great. There you have it, guys. Thanks for tuning in to Unstoppable with me, your host, Kerwin Ray. And do me a favor. Don't forget to drop me a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear what you think. I love reading what you guys have to say. And your reviews make sure we keep creating killer content just like this. If you want to stay up to date with me and all my movements, please jump onto the website, kerwinray.com. And also check us out on social media, at Kerwin Ray.